And I'm going to ask if you would please turn with me in your Bibles this morning to Isaiah 48, 12 through 19. That is our Old Testament reading. And then we'll be going over to Romans chapter 9. Romans 9. But we begin Isaiah 48, verses 12 through 19. And this is the word of the Lord. This is the Lord's call to Israel. Listen to me, O Jacob, and Israel, whom I called. I am he. I am the first and I am the last. My hand laid the foundation of the earth, and my right hand spread out the heavens. When I call to them, they stand forth together. Assemble, all of you, and listen. Who among them has declared these things? The Lord loves him. He shall perform his purpose on Babylon, and his arm shall be against the Chaldeans. I, even I, have spoken and called him. I have brought him, and he will prosper in his way. Draw near to me and hear this. From the beginning, I have not spoken in secret. From the time it came to be, I have been there. And now the Lord God has sent me and his spirit. Thus says the Lord, your Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel. I am the Lord your God who teaches you to profit, who leads you in the way that you should go. Oh, that you had paid attention to my commandments. Then your peace would be like a river and your righteousness like the waves of the sea. Your offspring would have been like the sand and your descendants like its grains. Their name would never be cut off or destroyed from before me. And now let's turn to Romans chapter 8. I'm sorry, Romans 9. We've been in 8 so long (laughs) going through chapter 8, all that wonderful assurance. And 9... Add to that as well, if you're truly in Christ. Romans 9, and I'm going to read verses 1 uh, through 13, but we'll focus on verses 1 through 5 in our preaching. Paul said, I'm speaking the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience bears witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart, for I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen according to the flesh. They're Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, it is Christ who is God over all, blessed forever, amen. But it is not as though the word of God has failed, for not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. And not all the children of Abraham, because they are his offspring, but through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it's not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said, about this time next year I will return and Sarah shall have a son. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and not done anything, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told, the older will serve the younger, as it is written, Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we do thank you and praise you for your precious word your sovereign word, Lord God, and I just pray that you would be with each and every one of us here this morning, 
that you would illuminate our hearts by your spirit. Please give us insight. Give us wisdom, Lord, into your word. Teach us your truths and help us to know them and to receive them for what they are, your very word, Lord God, your very truth. So I pray, Lord, that you would convict us where we need to be convicted. Encourage us, Lord, through your word where we need to be encouraged. Build us up and strengthen us in our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. I pray that you would be with me to bring forth your truth, Lord God. Help me not to get in the way of your truth, even as we together sit at the feet of our teacher, Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen and amen. Like I said, I'm going to focus in really on the first five verses this morning. Uh, we're coming to the classic section in the book of Romans, a very controversial section, to be sure, the section of the doctrine of God's sovereign election or his predestination. God is sovereign in salvation, and he determines who will be saved. Now, just by saying that, people get their cackles up, don't they, right away. This This chapter has caused a little more than a little consternation among good Christians through the centuries. And um, we're going to do our part. Uh, we are going to take a real deep dive in the next few weeks into this particular doctrine and teaching because it is so very important. So in the next few weeks, we'll consider this vital doctrine and its implications. Uh, next time, we're going to lay it out and we're going to explain it as Paul does to us. And the week after that, we're going to deal with the very natural... Um, objections that come along with it. What do you mean? Like, is it, how's that fair? All these questions and um, objections, common objections that Paul anticipates and answers, and we'll do the same. But for today, for today, as we prepare to look deeper into this doctrine, I want to, I want you to learn about two attitudes, or think about, and then carry on two attitudes that we need to foster. And we need to encourage, even in ourselves, as we acknowledge God's electing grace. There's tension there, for sure. But I want you to embrace that tension. I really want us to enter into that, because God is absolutely sovereign in election, but we absolutely have work to do on his behalf. Amen and praise God. So, two things we're going to look at this morning. Number one is that God's election of his people, does not negate our responsibility to proclaim Jesus Christ and to preach the gospel and to pray and do all that we're able to do to try to convince lost people to come and to trust in Jesus Christ. And then number two, we are not to presume on the outward advantages that we have as God's people as if they make the inward transformation happened. I'll explain that a little farther as we go along. We're not to presume on all the benefits that we have and believe that that equates with Christianity itself or true faith in Christ itself. God's grace alone saves his people. Amen and praise God. So, number one, God's election does not negate our personal responsibility to proclaim Jesus Christ. And we'll look at the first uh, two verses as we think about that. Paul says, I am speaking the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience bears witness, bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. Do you see that? See how amazing that is? What Paul is saying, that love that he has for the gospel and for his people. Um, when it comes down to what ultimately determines whether one person believes or does not believe, Paul's answer 
And this is very, I want you to get this. Paul's answer never lies with us. As we read through scripture, as we read through Paul's letters, as we read in Romans, it's never something about us that induces God to save us. It's never something that we do. Look, God, here's what I'm doing. Please show me your favor. It's never something about us in particular. Right? The things we do, who we are, the choices that we make, it always comes down to God's choice and election. And you know that because you know that you're not worthy to be saved. It's not something you can bring yourself to the Lord and say, look, God, here, look what I've done. Look look what I'm doing. Don't, don't you just pour out your favor on me. We know if you're true and honest to yourself, that we don't deserve salvation at all. We know what we are apart from him. So we know it always comes down to God's choice and election. We'll be really looking and taking a deep look into that in the coming weeks. However, that fact aside does not mitigate, it does not negate our responsibility to evangelize the lost. Paul knows that God is sovereign in salvation, but it doesn't change the fact that Paul is so sincere and so deep and such a heartfelt desire to see his kinsmen come to faith, doesn't he? Just read it. It just jumps off the page. He is so emotionally involved and invested in his people and in the gospel. Look at him. I'm speaking the truth. I'm not lying. My conscience bears witness. I have great sorrow and unceasing, unceasing anguish. In my heart, I wish that myself, I was accursed that my people would come to Jesus Christ. You see the love that he has, all the while knowing that God is sovereign in salvation. Paul nevertheless says this and understands this. There's that tension that we need to just embrace as Christians. You see that desire that he had. Paul was no cold, hard Calvinist. John Calvin wasn't a hard Calvinist. <laughs> he wasn't, he wasn't, he wasn't harder that way, if you know him. But we have that reputation. Oh, you're reformed. Oh, you're the Calvinist. Oh, you don't really care. You can just sit back and, you know, if they're elect, then they're going to come to salvation. So I need not concern myself. There couldn't be anything further from the truth. Not at all. Look at Paul. Look at Paul's desire. He is fully aware of his privilege, not only his privilege, but his duty to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. Bottom line, he had a heart for the lost. And as Christians, we must have heart. You must have a heart for the lost. Do you? Do you have a heart for the lost in our midst? Paul does, and it just gushes out. It just jumps off the page for us. Of course he has a heart. Of course he wants to see his people safe. He knows what's at stake. He knows heaven and hell. He knows light and darkness. He knows what's what what the end is. Don't you want your family to be saved? Don't you? How do we pray for our family members? Don't we witness to them as the Lord gives us opportunity? That's what he's doing here. Of course. These are his family. These are relatives. These are fellow countrymen. And he knows what's at stake. So he speaks with sincerity and with seriousness and deeply emotionally involved. Look how, again, that verse three, I wish that I myself was accursed. I'll give up my salvation in order for you to be saved. You have that kind of love, that sacrificial love, that desire, that want to for those in our midst to be saved. I want you to grasp that because Paul does all the while knowing that God is sovereign in salvation. See that love that he has for his people, but it doesn't stop there. It didn't stop with just his people. Because then we could say, oh, you're by, you just want your family members to be saved. And you're just worried about them and not anybody. No, 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 no. We're worried about everybody. And we love with the love of Christ those who do not know him. Do you understand? Paul was the gospel, Paul was the minister to the Gentiles, wasn't he? 
It was Peter who went to the Jews, but we know even Romans 11, 13, Paul says this. Now I'm speaking to you Gentiles inasmuch then as I am an apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry. He labored among the Gentiles. He loved them with the love of Christ. He suffered so much on his behalf. Just read the epistles. From the prison guard in Acts to the women sitting by the river to the king himself, Paul preached it. Amen? To everybody, all the time, as the Lord gave him opportunity. Acts 26, 28, 29, he's preaching before Agrippa. And Agrippa says to him, Paul, in a short time, you're going to persuade me to be a Christian. What do you think Paul's response is? You know, does he back off in any way? Standing before the king, before the magistrate. And he says, he says to him, and Paul said, whether short or long, I would to God that not only you, but also all who hear me this day might become such as I am, except for these chains. Do you see that love of Paul for the lost? Do you see the love for the gospel? This resonates even with Romans 9, 1 through 3, that, that, that idea of him speaking. I wish you were like this. I wish you knew him. I want you to know him. So it was with the, the Gentiles as well. But not only those who are sympathetic or give him a hearing, but that grace is extended even to our enemies, even to those who don't like you because you're a Christian, even those who will do things to you and against you and malign you because you're a Christian. You know what? You need to love them too with the love of the gospel. We don't show partiality when it comes to preaching the word of God. Never do that, man. Well, I'm just going to talk to these people over here and I'm going to segregate this. No, the gospel is for all people. That outward call goes to everybody with the same passion, with the same love, with the same desire. Just like you want to see your brother your biological brother come to Jesus Christ, you want to see that your enemy who hates you come to Christ in the same way. That's the love of Jesus Christ. That's the hope that we have in us. So he extends that grace even to his enemies. Romans 12, 20 and 21. We don't have that. <laughs> I didn't give that to my wife. Sorry for that. But that's the idea of even extending, giving a cold cup of water to your enemies because that will pour hot coals upon their head. Maybe bring that conviction to show those who hate you show much, so much the love of Jesus Christ that the Lord may use that to bring him to himself. See, that's what we need to concern ourselves with. God will worry about who's predestined. God will worry about who he's elected. We need to bring that gospel out. Let me ask you a question this morning. Is this your heart? Is it? Is this? For so many of us as Christians, and this is, in my life as well, we tend to forget all too quickly that initial zeal to tell everybody about Jesus Christ. Remember when you were first converted? It didn't matter. You weren't embarrassed. You weren't ashamed. You were telling everyone, you need Jesus. And they look at you crossway and like, you know, kind of write you off or whatever they did, right? But it didn't stop you from proclaiming Christ to those the Lord brought before you. What happens? What happens to us, man? We lose that zeal, don't we? We, we, we tend to forget all too quickly how the Lord has loved us and the person that told us the gospel of Jesus Christ. We get, like Bob Seeger said, we get a little bit older and a lot less bolder than we used to be in terms of telling people about Christ. We become jaded, you know, it's hard. The Christian life is difficult. You can become cynical, a little bit apathetic at times. Or we become so careful, we don't want to upset the apple cart, we don't want to come off as you know, mean-spirited or whatever, so we nuance the message, we water it down. We're not, no. No, 2 Timothy 2, 24-26, Paul's talking especially to, to ministers as he's talking to Timothy, but this principle applies to each and every one of you, all of us. Paul says, and the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, 
but he needs to be kind to everyone. That's universal. Able to teach, patiently enduring evil. That's a big deal. Correcting his opponents with gentleness. So it's not that we don't correct and let people go, but we do it in a gentle fashion. We're not pounding on them. Why? So that's our responsibility. Do you see that? Why? God may perhaps, here's the sovereignty of God, God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth that they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will, saving us from hell itself and from the devil. Do you understand? That's our attitude. That's our spirit. It is so important, as Paul does here, as he's speaking out here, and it's just, it should, you should just be amazed by this love that he has and his zeal to, to want to see salvation, and then what he does about that very thing. It's so important that people know that you care about them, Christian. It just is. We need to carry that love of Christ in our hearts. People need to know that on some level that you do love them, you love their soul, and you want them to be saved. They might not listen to you. They may even hate you more or whatever, but they will deep in the hearts respect that. You know, if you're just battling with them, if you're just condemning, if you say, oh, you're going to hell, I'm done with you, and just, you know, that's not gonna, that doesn't work towards the cause that we're looking for. But if you're speaking the truth in love, and they know that, and they know somehow they sense that love of Christ, that love that you have received in Christ, that's how we can love our enemies, not just on our own strength in our own way, but because we've been loved by Christ. And someone came and preached that gospel to you when you were on the other side as well. Genuinely concerned about their salvation. Even if they reject you, even if they hate you, they're going to know. Right? Look, by this time when Paul's writing this, did the Jews love him? Did his countrymen love him? No, not by any stretch of the... And he's saying, I wish I'll give my salvation up for them if they turn to him. Was he saying that because at that moment they were they were loving on Paul? They were accepting Paul? No, by this time, Paul was just outcast, right? He was gone. They hated him. They wanted to kill him, and they tried to kill him several times. Paul wasn't exactly loved by his fellow Jews or his kinsmen according to the flesh, but he knew what... And more importantly, whom they needed. And it was more important for him to preach the gospel than to worry about them liking him or loving him. Do you understand? That's what we need to have as a spirit. And that's what we need to remember as Christians. This very idea, this very fact that God is sovereign and he's sovereign in election. He knows those whom are his. He's chosen them before the foundation of the world. But that doesn't negate our responsibility to preach the gospel. And I mean with a genuine love, that genuine love of Jesus Christ. It's not the love we muster up. It's a love that he puts in our hearts. Genuine love for their eternal soul, not just temporal circumstances. That's a liberal Christian. People don't really care about eternity. They'll do everything and they'll help you material in the material ways, but they don't care about your soul as much. So they're going to affirm you in every single way. Oh, this is how you feel. This is who you are. This is Christian love and we love you and accept you. That's not Christian love. Christian love doesn't compromise the truth. In any way, it never compromises the gospel in any way, yet at the same time, it demonstrates deep care and concern for all people. Do you understand that? Because sometimes we have that, you know, we just want to bully with the truth and kind of leave people out there until they come to us. No, 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 no. We speak the truth in love and we come alongside and minister to them as we ought to. Do you understand? That's a big, big deal. In the 1980s, one illustration, when AIDS was at its height, the, the AIDS epidemic, you had Christians on different sides. You did certainly had Christians, and I'm 
a little bit of a characterization or an exaggeration, but I want to make the point, the purpose. You had some Christians on one side saying, that's exactly what they get. This is God's curse on that community. This is God's, you know, they, they, you know, they, they're, this is the judgment that's coming upon them. You had another side of evangelical Christians. Pastor Ed Littleton, who was in New York City, where a lot of the gay community, people were dying from AIDS. The hospitals wouldn't take them. The community rejected them. They were just thrown into these motels, dingy motels, just dying. You can listen. Look up Pastor Ed Littleton, because he was there in New York City in the mid-80s at the height of the AIDS epidemic, side by side with those who were dying, and he's preaching the gospel of love. Now, which side do you want to be on? He wasn't saying, okay, that whatever God was doing, our job is to bring that gospel and be near. Right? That's the idea. That love of Christ needs to come through. Paul was deeply engaged. We don't compromise, but they know we care. Paul was deeply engaged on an emotional level. No doubt about it. It just, you can't, you see it on the page of scripture. Deeply. All the while understanding God is sovereign in salvation. Right? There's a quote, Ignatius, Augustine, not sure who, but it says this, and it's it's well worth taking to heart. We need to pray as if everything depends upon God, and we do, and we rely on him, but then we need to work as if everything depends upon you, right? It doesn't negate what we're called to do as Christians. We don't rest on the fact that God is sovereign in the election. He's going to bring his people. He's using you. He's using your words through through his words to bring his people to himself. Embrace that tension. All right, that's one. Number two, second attitude we need to foster. Even as we acknowledge God's sovereign election, that God is sovereign, is that we do not presume on the outward advantages as if they make inward transformation. And that's very, very tricky for so many people. And I'm, as a pastor, this really, really concerns me. Sometimes it keeps me up at night because there's so many that are just relying on the, the laurels of being part of the Christian community without actually trusting in Christ who've never been transformed in the heart. And that's those are the people on the last day that are going to stand before the Lord and say, Lord, didn't I, comp- didn't I do this? Didn't I prophesy on your name? Didn't I do this? Depart from me, I never knew you. I'm telling you, that, that is for pastors... That's what keeps us up at night. Paul talks about this. This idea of not presuming helps explain election because if anyone should come to faith, it should have been the people that have all the advantages, just like the Jews, just like we do today. So it goes on to say, let's look at verses 4 and 5. Say, they are Israelites. To them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs. And from their race, according to the flesh, it is the Christ who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. Every spiritual advantage you could want, every privilege, every opportunity. Look at this. Adoption. That's not in a salvific way. He's not talking about how we talked about adoption in terms when we're converted. But the idea that God made that nation his own. He called these people to be a light unto the nations around them. They were to follow God and others were to see God through them and trust in him. Through the covenants, 
that special relationship, entering into covenant, pledging himself to his people in that way. The law, the law that teaches them about Christ and drives them to Jesus Christ, teaches them of God's holiness and of their sin and of their need for Christ. The patriarchs, examples of those who trusted by faith, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, it goes on and on, right? All these things, all the growing up in this milieu, growing up in this environment, and then Christ, the culmination of all the promises, the fulfillment of all the prophecies and the promises in him, the hope. This belonged to the Jews. Didn't happen, wasn't like that. Just like us, man. We have so many advantages, don't we? You go to different parts of the world, people never heard the name of Christ. Don't know what Christianity is. And what do we do so often? We just rest on those laurels. We take it for granted and we squander it. Don't do that. That's exactly what Paul is speaking to here. They had all the advantages. Why wouldn't they come to faith? Why wouldn't they believe in Christ? Why would they reject the Messiah? We're going to see that Paul's explanation is grounded in the doctrine of sovereign election. Again, that's to come in the next couple of weeks. But what I want you to understand this morning is that religious privileges are not, never were, salvific in themselves. And don't you make that mistake like so many of us do. So many do that. Make sure that you are trusting in Jesus Christ alone for your salvation this morning. Amen? Praise God. It's grace alone through Christ alone. It is a personal relationship with Christ. I want you to learn this well because it's exactly what Paul is saying here. All the advantages belong to them. Why wouldn't they come to faith? Learn it well. Do not presume because you were raised in a Christian environment. Many of you were raised in a Christian homes. You went to church every Sunday. You went to Sunday school and you learned all about you know, the Old Testament fathers and patriarchs and all the stories that you learned in that way. You went to youth group as you got a little bit older. You went to every single VBS that was out there. You did all those kinds of things. You were devoted to your church. Right? You went to Christian camp for, for that week-long thing. Christian school. Maybe you're even homeschooled in that way. At those Christian camps, you, you participated around the campfire. Maybe you raised your hand and went forward. You won the Bible memory verse contest. Yeah, cheering along, going in that way. Personal Bible reading. You never drank a drop. You never smoked a cig. You never used foul language. You kept yourself pure in the hopes that these things might make you a Christian. They do not. They do not. Parents, learn this well. Don't think that you're raising your kids in and around here just because they're here that this automatically going to confer or if they're walking down and make, you know, kind of a forced profession. Oh, do you really love Jesus? Just say you love him. Yeah. Oh, my kid's saved. You know, don't, don't count on that. Don't count on that. Because it's only the Holy Spirit who regenerates. Now, these things aren't bad in and of themselves. Don't get me wrong. A lot of these things are means that God uses to bring his people to himself. Amen and praise God. But we don't presume on them because our kids participate in these things or you participated in these things that you're a Christian somehow. That's not the case. It's by the power of the Holy Spirit. He's the one who regenerates your heart. Titus 3, 4, and 5 tells us this plainly. But when the goodness and the loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of works done, in righteousness, and those are kind of works of righteousness. Those are good things that I mentioned, not bad things. But they don't save you in and of themselves, and don't make that mistake like far too many Christians do, because we love our kids. We want them to be saved, and we presume that they are. 
He saved us not because of works done us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy. And there's the election. There's the grace by the washing and regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit. He is the one who saves and he alone. These other things that we do, these other things that we participate in, if you're not truly trusting, you're not regenerated, regenerated by the Spirit, you know what they make out of you? They make you a moral person. That's the best you can do with these things. That's the best you could do with these things. Try to be good. Oh, you shouldn't do that. You know, why not? Well, you just really shouldn't do those kinds of things. Here's what you should do. But those moral people, those moral lessons, eventually, it's not going to bring you to fruition. Eventually, you're going to end up in one of two places, right? Eventually, you're either going to reject those things Like we see so much today, how many stories day after day do you hear about people deconstructing their faith? You know, I'm deconstructing. I'm I'm walking away from Christianity. I'm doing this daily, daily. You can find these accounts every single day. Why? Because most of them, and listen to their stories, Joshua Harris, listen to their stories. They were raised in this Christian milieu, in this environment. But if you're not truly converted you're going to grow to resent these kinds of things because your inner man doesn't really want to do them. You want to rebel. You want to be like those other people out there. But I guess i got to be this way because I'm supposed to be a Christian, right? So that morality is going to get you so far and then you will resent these things. Oh, yeah, I went to those youth camps. I went to those things. When you hear these people deconstruct and they talk about these things in very disparaging ways. Oh, they were cute and they were fun, but we were really in the back partying with everybody else. You know what I mean? That's exactly what happens. Because they were never truly converted in that way. So does that, number one, lead to resentment? Or secondly, you quietly resign yourself in some ways, and you constantly are trying to do better. You know, I'm going to try harder. I'm going to do better. I'm going to read more. I'm going to pray. To the point where you just find yourself in this drowning in the sea of legalism, Right? You're just trying so hard. Well, here's what Christians do, and here's what Christians don't do. And I'm not going to do this, and I'm hoping this. Hopefully God's going to see that. But you know, that legalism leads to his bondage, man, doesn't it? Pride, arrogance, guilt, all those things. If you're, if you were raised in a legalistic home, you know there's very little love of Christ. There's very little grace, very little forgiveness and mercy. It's a lot of hard work, and you're not pleasing God yet. You're not doing well enough. Well, I'm going to try hard. I'm going to do better. Please love me, Lord. That's... That's where this leads, you understand? So those good things, do not presume. Do not gauge your salvation by the privilege or access that you have. Look, listen and learn. If there's no change in you, if you say you're a Christian, but there's no change in you, if there's no real spiritual fruit coming for your life, from your life, you, you, you need to examine yourself. If there's, if, if there's no real struggle, if you say, oh, I'm a Christian, but you don't really struggle with sin or conviction of sin. If, if, if there's no real pursuit of obedience, Lord, I want to know you. I want to please you. I want to be more like you. If there's not more dependence on Christ, then you best be careful. You really better be careful. You're not falling into this category of presuming like so many of the Jews did. They saw these things. They believed, oh, here's, distorted view of Messiah coming, or they believe that they already... No. No. If you say you're a Christian, but these things in the Christian life mean precious little to you, if you find it boring and burdensome, oh, it's just a bore. You know, I see my friends over there, and they're living very free. Everybody else is free, and here I am. I have to read. I have to pray. If you find it burdensome, 
to be in the Word, if you find it boring to live the Christian life, if it's just so hard, and I'm not talking about struggling with temptation and the difficulties, and sometimes it's just hard, you know, just our struggle in that way. I'm, t- I'm saying if it's just not part of, like, I'm just doing this merely out of obligation, then you have a problem, then there's an issue on a very base level. Do not presume on the advantage that you have. Because you're honoring him with your lips, but your heart is far away from him. Listen, if there's no difference in your life, if you say you're a Christian, but there's no difference in your life, if you rationalize sin, well, we're Christians and we love each other, but that's okay. We could be together and sleep together, but we're Christians. That doesn't comport. That doesn't go with what the Bible says. The Bible says you can't be fornicated. If you want to be together in that way, you need to be married, husband and wife. Come on. Don't minimize, don't rationalize or sin and then say, I'm a Christian. You know what a bad witness you are when you do that? Right? Well, I'm a Christian, but here I am. I'm going to go out and party with my friends, but I'm a Christian. You have these dudes drunk at the bar, drinking, hey, I'm a Christian. I could do that. No, no. Okay? We don't rationalize, we don't minimize sin. We don't live just like everybody else or like we used to live and call ourselves Christian. There's a distinct change in our lives. And that needs to be evident to some degree. I know we battle, we go up and down, back and forth. I know the Christian struggle we talked about in that Romans 7, okay. But if that's not, don't say I'm a Christian. And parents, don't believe, even your adult children, when they say we want that because we're like Paul, we want them to be saved. But we need to make sure that they're truly trusting in Jesus Christ. Paul who has the deepest understanding of God's sovereign election, and we're going to see that in the next couple of weeks, teaches with just as much vigor, just as much zeal, just as much conviction, our twin responsibilities. A heart for the lost. That's what he had. A heart for the gospel. Taking every advantage that the Lord gives us to preach it, to teach it, to tell others about Christ. Do not remain silent. Paul wasn't silent. You know, we, we, we could love, and I say this often, we could love our family members, our friends, our enemies straight to hell by saying nothing or precious little to them or just affirming them in their sin and in their lies. Don't do that. Love them enough to preach the actual gospel. And we are sinners. Christ lived the life we couldn't live, died the death we deserved to die, was buried, was raised on the third day. All who call upon his name will be saved. Election teaches us with with that conviction our responsibility, a heart for the lost, number one, and then number two, not presuming, not taking for granted all the advantages that we have as Christians. Take advantage of those advantages by truly looking to Jesus Christ, but don't rest in those things. I don't care about your laundry list. You can tell me how wonderful you are. You can tell me how many contests you want. You can tell me how many Bible memory verses you have. You can tell me everything that you know about doctrine, but if you don't have Christ, you have nothing. Trust in Christ. Don't presume. Take advantage of what he's given us and look to him. A heart for the lost and not presuming on anything else but the grace of God in Jesus Christ to save sinners like us. Next week, we're going to take on and define this doctrine of sovereign election. But keep this in mind as we go through chapter 9.